This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome. <coughs> As I said, uh, now some five and a half hours ago, my name is Chip Blacker. And I am the director of the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. And for those of you who have just arrived, I extend my uh, warmest welcome to you uh, as you join uh, our International Day Conference. For those of you who are still here after the morning plenaries, I would ask you to provide the newcomers uh, with the inside story as to why there was a round of applause when I introduced myself as the director of the Freeman Spogli Institute at Stanford University. It's a time of great, uh, great joy and great pleasure uh, for those of us who were fortunate enough to be associated with this institute and this institution. It is now my great pleasure and a personal pleasure to introduce today's luncheon keynote speaker, the Honorable Philip Zelico, Counselor to the U.S. Department of State. Dr. Zelico was appointed by Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice on February 25th of this year to serve as her senior policy advisor on what we euphemistically call a wide range of policy issues, which means that Phil gets stuck with all the hard cases. Phil Zellico is probably most familiar to you because of his recent work as the executive director of the National Commission on Terrorist Attacks upon the United States, better known as the 9-11 Commission, and whose final report was a finalist for the 2004 National Book Award in nonfiction. Before returning to the State Department earlier this year, Phil Zellico was the White Burkett Miller Professor of History at the University of Virginia, where he also directed the Miller Center of Public Affairs, the nation's largest research center devoted to the study of the American presidency. Prior to assuming his current post, Dr. Zellico served in a variety of capacities within the executive branch, including postings with the Navy, uh, the State Department, and the National Security Council. He also taught for a number of, of years at the John F. Kennedy School of Government uh, at Harvard University. In addition to his work with the 9-11 Commission, Dr. Zelikow was the Executive Director of the National Commission on Election Reform, chaired by former Presidents Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford, and he served in the same capacity for the Markle Foundation's Task Force on National security in the information age. Dr. Zelikow has written widely on U.S. foreign policy and on international affairs more broadly and is the author or co-author of The Kennedy Tapes, Germany Unified and Europe Transformed, and the second edition, which is essentially a new book, of The Essence of Decision, just to mention uh, three of his better-known works. His topic today is the United States and the world. It's a real pleasure to have Phil with us today, and please join me in welcoming him back to Stanford, where he has become something of a fixture over the years. Ladies and gentlemen, the Honorable Philip Zelikow.
Thank you, Chip, for that introduction. It's uh, good to be back at Stanford. It's especially appropriate to be speaking to you right here um, in this uh, gorgeous building built on the gravesite of Galvez House. Um, Galvez House, which a few of you may remember, is a place where I had probably some of my best days as a scholar. And I know that folks now have moved on to better and more beautiful and more elegant surroundings in Encina Hall and elsewhere. But I bet perhaps like you, you occasionally remember the screen doors. And, and I don't know if you can actually watch hummingbirds outside your windows anymore. It's also fitting to be back here at Stanford University um, to give a talk on American foreign policy. Um, as a historian, one can appreciate the role Stanford University has played in the evolution of America's thinking about the world. Uh, this institution has been a leading institution in the study of international relations for more than 100 years. Today, Stanford University, as a center for the study of the world, um, has no superiors in the world and few, if any, equals. Uh, this is an extraordinary accumulation of basic research and applied research that has been accumulated in one institution and sustained generation after generation. And it's pleasing to see how well that legacy is being carried forward. My subject today is to talk about practical idealism, present policy in historical perspective. The foreign policies of the present Bush administration are ambitious. They are also motivated in good part by ideals that transcend narrow conceptions of material self-interest. Such ambition with such idealism has produced extraordinary policies and extraordinary debate. When confronted with a novel phenomenon, people often try to situate it against some past experience. This debate has summoned many analogies to the past. Bush's policies, for instance, are commonly described as Wilsonian, or they are seen as imperial. Usually these analogies are employed to make a point about naive idealism or imperial hubris, and history gets pretty badly mangled. So as a sometime historian and present public official, I will talk about the past, pointing out a few highlights along the way, en route to discussing some of the government's current policies. The first great spasm of American action well beyond North America came a little more than 100 years ago as the country became conscious of its scale, its wealth, and its potential power. The United States came late to the imperial table at which the other great powers were already dining, and it left early. In this country, imperialism was a kind of fever that rose and receded, especially during the 1890s. It was brought on by a combination of factors. Some talked about supposed advantages in the projection of military power, some talked about access to markets. Others felt America was simply entitled to assert itself, as others had, seeking its share of national power and glory. But also in America, religious idealism was a major force. For a time, all these streams converged, but it passed. Then and now, most Americans do not want to rule foreign peoples. The imperialist fever broke quickly. Indeed, even by the time of the election of 1900, both parties were renouncing any desire to extend America's domain. Theodore Roosevelt had been one of the more avid imperialists, but his ascent to the presidency, the insurrection in the Philippines, and the British experience in the Boer War all helped cool his ardor. 
By temperament, Roosevelt was a fighter all his life. He exulted in martial virtues. But in practice, he applied ideals to action with careful deliberation. He practiced a strong idealism about the purposes of American power, which Roosevelt often summarized using terms like justice and righteousness. Among those who thought about the outside world a 100 years ago, a great contest of ideas had emerged, one that continues today. Now, we are fond of dualities, and teaching and writing about international relations has drilled the duality into practically everyone's head, realism versus idealism. George Kennan was particularly responsible for this with writings that fit so well into his deeply conservative, that's small c conservative, and even anti-democratic worldview. A deservedly eminent Stanford historian recently even cast the protagonists as ultra-realism on the one hand, with Theodore Roosevelt as its exemplar, and democratic idealism on the other, represented by Woodrow Wilson. The Bush administration was thus seen as the latter-day incarnation of the Wilsonian approach. This is not right. In part, it is not right because it separates purpose from practice, ideals from action. Return again to the first decade of the 20th century. The contestants in this great emerging battle of ideas fell into four camps. First, there were the social Darwinists. They saw the world as a ruthless struggle for power, mainly in military or territorial terms. Some added that, within their domains, the great power should claim exclusive access to raw materials or markets. This camp was strong in all of the older European empires and in Japan's new one. In the 20th century, in the United States, this school of thought became and remained a distinctly minority view. The heirs of these social Darwinists regard themselves as realists because they believe they face up to the world as it is and see international politics as the adjustment of competing self-interest. Second, were those who, while recognizing the importance of power, thought that the civilized nations, people used terms like that back then, had a positive moral duty to use their power to promote the just settlement of international disputes and prevent aggression. Members of this group also think of themselves as realists. They count moral altruism as a form of self-interest. They emphasize the practical value of virtue, the enlightened self-interest in freedom, accountability, and lawful conduct. Their readiness to use power in a calculated way to support these ideals marks them out as practical idealists. Theodore Roosevelt was very much an idealist in this sort. Roosevelt, for instance, actively supported the movement to develop enforceable international law to regulate disputes. He proposed a, quote, League of Peace, close quote, that he hoped could be led and enforced by the great powers. At the Hague Conference of 1907, his administration endorsed compulsory arbitration for most international disputes. His Secretary of State, Elhu Root, was the first president of the American Society of International Law. But Roosevelt did not see international law or arbitration as ends in themselves. Neither did he see peace as necessarily an end in itself. Accepting a Nobel Peace Prize that he had richly earned through mediating an end to the Russo-Japanese War and helping settle a crisis over Morocco, Roosevelt warned that, quote, peace is generally good in itself, but it is never the highest good unless it comes as the handmaid of righteousness and it becomes a very evil thing 
if it serves merely as a mask for cowardice and sloth, or as an instrument to further the ends of anarchy, close quote. A third group also gathered strength a hundred years ago. They were men and women who did see peace as an end justifying almost any means for its attainment. We can call them Pacific idealists. They saw the world already moving into a phase when states and nationalism would decline. Stanford's president, David Starr Jordan, wrote in 1899 that the day of nations is passing. National hopes, national ambitions, national aggrandizement, all these become public nuisances, close quote. Peace was their supreme goal. It was to be achieved by conciliation and consensus among people everywhere, promoted by international organization. They, too, saw themselves as realists, exponents of a higher realism that subordinated national ambition to the freedom of humanity. These views were expounded by the leading academics of the day, like the president of Stanford and the president of Harvard, joined by great philanthropists like Andrew Carnegie. Jordan equated the progress of democratic ideas with the progress of peace, but he expected this to happen in the fullness of time, not because the United States took risks to help it happen. Another prominent academic who shared these views was the president of Princeton University, Woodrow Wilson, who soon became president of the United States. Wilson's first secretary of state was the country's leading pacifist, William Jennings Bryan. Bryan actually held views more representative of a fourth camp, one that was especially strong in the United States. We might now call them isolationists. Generally skeptical of entangling international ventures, these men and women saw themselves as the true hard-headed realists. They thought that foreign threats or opportunities were usually exaggerated. The isolationists were found politically on both the left and the right, where they argued that these exaggerations diverted attention from necessary domestic reform, or alternatively, served interests or emotions that they regarded as un-American. As World War I began in Europe, many Americans endorsed the isolationist view, seeing any danger as very remote or abstract. And the war divided the practical idealists from the Pacific idealists. Theodore Roosevelt favored American intervention in the war. His main motives had less to do with the balance of power than with the nature of the German government and the character of its aggression. There was much Roosevelt admired about Germany, but by the end of his presidency, he had concluded that Prussian militarism was dangerous and that the Kaiser was an unstable leader. He thought the German invasion of neutral Belgium was manifestly unjust. He was appalled by reports of German atrocities, and he thought this at least obliged Americans to sympathize openly with the Allies. Quote, there is such a thing, Roosevelt wrote, as international morality. I take this position as an American, who endeavors loyally to serve the interests of his own country, but who also endeavors to do what he can for justice and decency as regards mankind at large, and who therefore feels obliged to judge all other nations by their conduct on any given occasion. Close quote. Four months after writing those words, the 1915 German sinking of the passenger liner Lusitania tipped Roosevelt into publicly advocating American entry into the war. Most Americans did not agree with him. Wilson did demand that the Germans not sink passenger liners. 
but he rejected the recommendation of his second Secretary of State, Robert Lansing, to declare the war a battle between autocracy and democracy. After Wilson's re-election in 1916, the Germans commenced unrestricted submarine attacks on American shipping, assuming that war would result. Wilson then slowly and reluctantly brought the country into war. We cannot replay history. We cannot know whether an earlier American intervention in the war might have shortened its course or mitigated its catastrophic effects on world order, including the horrors that enveloped Russia. But once in the war, Wilson set high aims for it as a war to save democracy. The ensuing problems arose less from Wilson's ideals than from the way he sought to attain them. When Wilson put forward his landmark 14 points as war aims, including a peace based on self-determination, most Republican internationalists agreed with him. Where they differed was in Wilson's call for a peace, quote, just to victors and vanquished alike, close quote. The Republicans, led by Senator Henry Cabot Lodge, proposed instead that the United States should seek Germany's unconditional surrender. Wilson refused. When the war ended, a great domestic battle began over the terms of peace and the building of a League of Nations. Wilson lost the support of the isolationists. But he could have won over the Republican internationalists, though they despised Wilson. Lodge and his allies, using ideas developed by Elihu Root, sought a league that could work, one more akin to Roosevelt's original League of Peace. Lodge told the Senate, quote, If, however, there is to be a League of Nations in order to enforce peace, one thing is clear. It must be either a mere assemblage of words, an exposition of vague ideals and encouraging hopes, or it must be a practical system. If such a league is to be practical and effective, it cannot possibly be either unless it has authority to issue decrees and force to sustain them. It is at this point that the questions of great moment arise. Close quote. Wilson refused the Lodge reservations. The League and Wilson's crusade went down to humiliating public defeat. With acrimonious disappointment in practically every quarter, save perhaps among the isolationists, international idealism had suffered a heavy blow, though it was still pursued in a diluted form by the Republican internationalists who dominated foreign policy between 1921 and 1933. By the 1930s, the old acrimony had deepened and spread into a general belief that the entire cause of American intervention into the Great War had been a bloody mistake. There was a hunt for scapegoats. Laws were passed to ensure such foreign adventures would not happen again. Isolationism reached its zenith. And meanwhile, the world began facing the greatest dangers that modern civilization has ever faced. Franklin Roosevelt liked Wilson's agenda at home. He also shared Wilson's faith in human freedom as a liberating and pacifying force. But in translating those ideals into practice, FDR was a militant and practical idealist. In his first administration, FDR had neglected foreign policy and had made the world economic crisis even worse by precipitously withdrawing the United States from support of the international economic system. But as the years passed, Roosevelt was not neutral about who was right and who was wrong, as he continued to observe the behavior of Germany, Japan, and Italy. As early as 1937, he spoke of a quarantine of the aggressor nations, but retreated as he saw the congressional lineup against him. When France fell in 1940, Roosevelt promptly asked for a vast military buildup. He told the country that America could not survive as a lone island in a sea of tyranny. 
Even while preparing America for war, FDR had to maneuver against a public opinion where, even on the eve of Pearl Harbor, only 24% of the population was willing to intervene forcibly in the war. Once in the war, FDR followed Lodge's course rather than Wilson's. FDR called for the unconditional surrender of the Axis powers, knowing full well that this would require the destruction of their governments and the occupation of their countries. In August 1941, in a secret meeting on an American cruiser off the shore of Newfoundland, FDR and Winston Churchill worked on a common statement of global aims that came to be called the Atlantic Charter. This historic declaration put freedom at the top of Allied war aims. In looking toward how to secure freedom, Churchill proposed that the statements say the powers would secure the peace, quote, by effective international organization, close quote. One of those present recalled what happened next. FDR, quote, said he himself would not be in favor of the creation of a new assembly of the League of Nations, at least until after a period of time had passed and during which an international police force composed of the United States and Great Britain had had an opportunity of functioning. Mr. Churchill said this would create a great deal of opposition from the extreme internationalists. The president replied that he realized that, but that he felt the time had come to be realistic, and that in his judgment, the main factor was complete realism. Mr. Churchill then remarked that he shared the president's view. Close quote. What became the United Nations included a security council designed to enable the great powers to play the policing role that FDR had envisioned. FDR thus effectively made the Republican internationalist position of a generation earlier into Democratic Party orthodoxy. The more Pacific idealists became a minority within that party, and then briefly a third party movement headed by Henry Wallace in the election of 1948. After World War II, however, the hope of great power collaboration and actively solving international problems quickly faded. The division of the world between democratic and totalitarian ideals remained after the war ended. But the Soviet Union, soon joined by revolutionary China, led a rival bloc of states and revolutionary movements. The idealistic objectives of the 1940s seemed increasingly remote. The application of those ideals into action not only seemed remote, but even perilous. Now any actions had to be contemplated beneath the terrible shadow of nuclear weapons. In the thermonuclear age, war itself seemed to be the greatest danger to humankind. Generations of statesmen conditioned themselves to seeking nothing better than a world half slave and half free. By the late 1980s, the modus vivendi had become an end in itself. It was even seen as a positive good. The division of Germany was praised as a stable solution to the old German question in international politics. Some of the best experts on East Germany considered it the stablest country in the Eastern Bloc, the one they thought enjoyed the most support from its people. In 1988, leading American and European statesmen regarded the Cold War as over, with both sides having settled into seemingly permanent trench lines along the divide of two different social systems. In this environment, international cooperation often required the consent of both blocs. Common work was easier if one side wasn't too judgmental about the way others govern their people. International institutions maintained a detached neutrality to preserve a friendly consensus, choosing courtesy over candor. In other words, 
The decades of Cold War, the disappointment of conflicts like that in Vietnam, greatly strengthened the persuasive force in the world of ideas of social Darwinists who disavowed dangerous moral goals, while also rebuilding the legitimacy and appeal of Pacific idealists. Both schools of thought could thrive in a world that sought peace through the mutual assurance of destruction. And then, in 1989 and 1990, many of the Cold War's assumptions about stability, peace, and the role of ideals were overthrown, along with so much else. Some American and European leaders rediscovered the power of practical idealism. In 1991, the Soviet Union passed into history. A new era of world politics was coming into being. The attacks on September 11, 2001, did not create the new era, but they were a catalytic moment in America's and the world's recognition that it had arrived. The greatest dangers are now as much transnational as they are international. They are defined more by the fault lines within societies than by the territorial borders between them. The decisive clashes may not be between civilizations, but within them. In the 20th century, the geography of national security focused on industrial heartlands. In the 21st century, we instead study virtual maps of centers of knowledge and innovation. Or, instead of defending industrial centers, we look to the world's ill-governed peripheries. In these places, our capacity to influence events is understandably strained. The Westphalian order that placed state sovereignty above all has significantly eroded. But we should not return to the dualism of a hundred years ago when the choice was portrayed placing states and wicked nationalism on one side and globalization and Pacific internationalism on the other. What is emerging instead and what this government favors is a more interesting hybrid between those extremes. States remain the essential building blocks in common edifices of public order and opportunity. The way states are governed may now be wide open to peer review. And the world is no longer so neutral in judging between freedom and tyranny. Nations will still make the fundamental choices, and they will be increasingly accountable for them. The structure of world politics, once focused on blocks of rival powers, has also changed. The United States, for example, can now form active agendas of cooperation with every major center of global power, founded on uneven yet growing degrees of agreement about the underlying principles that should govern the organization of society. The purposes of this government are idealistic, but they are wedded to an understanding of how those ideals will have to be translated into action, creating, as President Bush has put it, a, quote, balance of power that favors freedom, close quote. Those ideals of freedom and human dignity are profoundly suited to the modern age. In a world of constant change, greater personal and economic freedom is the perpetual safety valve, the source of adaptation. Personal and economic freedom can thus provide more structural resilience so different societies can find the forms of organization that will work for them. In the President's second inaugural address, he emphasized that the United States deliberately accepts the calculated risk that goes with self-determination. Countries of the world should find freedom in forms they will choose, 
their voice, their freedom, their way. In thinking about means, Theodore Roosevelt's standard was that, quote, in striving for a lofty ideal, we must use practical methods. And if we cannot attain all in one leap, we must advance towards it step by step, reasonably content so long as we do actually make some progress in the right direction, close quote. In choosing to invade Afghanistan, the United States and its allies concluded that only such a bold step would actually deal with the enemy that had long used that country as a base for killing Americans. In choosing to invade Iraq, the United States and its allies believed there was no other way to deal, at last, with one of the worst tyrannies in the world. Yes, the coalition believed the tyrant was building up an arsenal of weapons of mass destruction. And, yes, those weapons were not found. But what the investigators found was not so reassuring. They concluded that the tyrant had preserved his program to build those weapons once the sanctions regime had collapsed. And they found that Iraq had created a clandestine economy that was, indeed, gradually breaking up the sanctions regime. And they found that the tyrant would not reveal the true state of his weapons programs, not even at the point of invasion, because it was more important to him that others believe he could wield terrifying power. And they did believe it. For a number of years, American leaders in both parties sensed that the situation of Saddam's Iraq was dangerously unstable. Some reckoning had to come sooner or later. The question was when. And it was whether. Whether, if that time came, the United States would find the will to take on such a difficult task. That question has been answered. In practice, the United States does not and cannot dictate to every society. There is no American empire. Real imperial power is sovereign. Sovereigns rule. They monopolize the use of force. They control the administration of justice and define what justice means. They can control what is bought and sold to the limits of the ruler's capacities. So when people refer to an American empire, they use the word empire as a metaphor. They may reach for such a metaphor because they find it hard to describe the nature of American primacy. But the metaphor is misleading. A recent essay describes the way American soldiers exert influence in the country of Niger by sending trainers for its soldiers. To invoke the imperial metaphor, the author called them America's African Rifles, close quote. But unlike the old King's African Rifles to which he alludes, the United States does not direct the army of Niger. It does make Niger stronger to do what Niger chooses to do. America does seek to build up the capability of others. The article describes the kind of social bonding that occurs from people helping each other. And what power is this? Take it to its essence. It is the power of friendship. The United States crafts different solutions for different problems. Pakistan's president is not elected. During the 1980s and 1990s, Pakistan's history with terrorist movements and weapons of mass destruction was problematic, to say the least. After 9-11, the United States, treating Pakistan as a friend, asked, in effect, very directly, what do you wish your country to become? Coming to terms with a difficult legacy, 
President Musharraf has answered that question constructively, in words and deeds, and at the risk of his life. Therefore, as Pakistan prepares for the elections it is committed to hold in 2007, the United States thinks about what Pakistan can become. It designs practical policies to raise the odds for a Pakistan that feels secure, is at peace with its neighbors, is on a promising economic path, and is a nation where the high tide of anti-Americanism and sympathy for extremism has visibly begun to recede. Friendship is not just a military undertaking. With Pakistan, the United States has developed a $3 billion package of assistance, concerned with the future of public education, economic development, and fostering the rule of law. And such efforts must go far beyond Pakistan. The United States has doubled the amount of its overseas development assistance in the Bush administration. Measured in constant dollars, I stress that, the Bush administration has raised government aid levels to the highest point since the administration of Lyndon Johnson. And this figure does not include the reconstruction assistance that is being given to Iraq. American power is certainly not sufficient to address every problem. But Americans can also help others solve problems. Look at recent events in Sudan. To address the Darfur crisis, UN authority was needed to lay down a foundation for further action. So, the United States recently helped lead the passage of three resolutions that laid such a foundation. Peacekeeping forces are needed. So, the United States has supported the African Union's acceptance of the task. But the African Union needs help with planning and logistics for such a large-scale effort. So, the United States encouraged the involvement of NATO to provide that support, and the AU has now formally requested that assistance. The European Union is now also indicating its willingness to help. So this is an enterprise that may involve at least four different international organizations working together in novel ways. Americans will not play the primary role. Africans, not Americans, will keep the peace. But the United States is helping to make it happen. Admittedly, the present worldwide challenges are formidable. The United States government does not yet have all the capability it needs if it is to build up the capabilities of others. But this administration has shown it is prepared to take on tough challenges, whether they are overseas or they are in transforming the institutions of government at home. Transformational diplomacy does not just mean more communiques being drafted by more diplomats gathered around green tables. Transformational diplomacy also means more hands-on engagement of diplomats in the field, in some of the world's most difficult places, offering a helping hand. They are the hands of people like Fern Holland, who went to Iraq as an employee of the United States Agency for International Development and organized human rights groups, including six centers for women in South Baghdad. She was murdered by gunmen near Hilla in March 2004. Two months earlier, in an email to a friend, she wrote, I love the work, and if I die, know that I'm doing precisely what I want to be doing. Close quote. And transformational diplomacy was the work of Jim Mullen, a diplomat serving as the U.S. advisor to Iraq's new Ministry of Higher Education and its 45,000 employees. Mullen was murdered by gunmen in Baghdad last November as he was driving around to say goodbye to his Iraqi colleagues. Headlines every day remind us how much more difficult it is to build than it is to destroy. 
but we can draw some comfort from the words of another wartime president, words that Franklin Roosevelt penned in the midst of World War II. Quote, I am everlastingly angry only at those who assert vociferously that the four freedoms in the Atlantic Charter are nonsense because they are unattainable. If those people had lived a century and a half ago, they would have sneered and said that the Declaration of Independence was utter piffle. If they had lived nearly a thousand years ago, they would have laughed uproariously at the ideals of Magna Charta. And if they had lived several thousand years ago, they would have derided Moses when he came from the mountain with the Ten Commandments. We concede that these great teachings are not perfectly lived up to today, but I would rather be a builder than a wrecker hoping always that the structure of life is growing, not dying. Close quote. Thank you. We have about uh, 15 minutes left for questions, um, and I would invite you to queue up at the mics. There's one here and one here. Uh, and address them to, to Dr. Zelico. Phil, do you want to feel your own? What, could you feel them for me? Sure, absolutely. Scott, are you in line? I am. Please. Hello, Philip. Uh, as usual, good to have you back here. Um, let me reassure you that although we do not have as many hummingbirds up on the second or third floors, uh, fourth floors of Encina Hall as we had back at Galvez House, neither do we have as many skunks in the basement, which was our other problem here when we were over at Galvez, <laughs> as you recall. Um, one of the, the common themes in both your scholarly work and the 9-11 Commission report is how difficult it is to change organizations that have embedded routines, that need to be retrained, and have structures that um, are sticky. Um, any foreign policy is only as good as the intelligence that goes in to day-to-day -day work being done. Now that you're on the inside, can you comment on how you feel the intelligence reforms that you helped instigate are being implemented? Are, are there new things that need to be done? Are you satisfied with the kinds of changes of the intelligence that goes into the making of foreign policy from where you sit in the State Department now? Um, well, like any proud parent who views the baby at age three months, I'm sure it will grow to be a healthy, prosperous adult. Um, the good news is that uh, the president is fully committed to the reform agenda. I think that's, there was a lot of skepticism and suspicion about that. Um, I think those skeptics are quieter now, um, as the president has made some very concrete decisions that make it utterly clear that the director of national intelligence is going to be suitably empowered. By the way, I, uh, uh, I don't by this mean to say that all the problems of the intelligence community and what it provides are simply resolved by fixing wiring diagrams. I never believed that. Uh, the organizational changes really are just enablers. They enable people to actually carry out management reforms, of which there are dozens that are cr critically needed. And here is the problem in assessing the answer to the question is, they are now in the process of up, standing up and being enabled to do all the things that need to be done but they have not yet done them. And it will be a process of months and years to see how well they do them, um, how well they are able to pool analysis, make information and analysis more rigorous, yet keep it relevant to policy concerns. There are some very promising things already being done in reevaluating the future of the PDB, for instance, the President's Daily Brief, 
into a, a more practical and useful entity. And such things are occurring at other levels. There are changes going on, for instance, in the way the National Intelligence Council is being situated and will perform that will make that much more potent as a pooler of the analytical knowledge of the wider community. Incidentally, the WMD Commission's findings, um, which converged significantly with our own but went beyond it in many respects, fruitfully, I think, um, are are very helpful in many respects. But it's really still too early to say. um, And the uh, organizational patterns that you've also observed are deeply ingrained. And so then you pose yourself as an academic. How do you do, how do you make dramatic organizational change? And every academic who studied the matter knows how hard it is. Yet they know that sometimes it happens. And so we've tried to put in place the enablers so that it can happen. Yes, sir. Uh, my name's William Jacobson. I'm a Silicon Valley businessman. I appreciate your wonderful grasp of history and uh, sweeping through the last century, but I would submit that uh, the bumbling diplomacy of the Bush administration is more akin to Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany in the First World War than it is to Woodrow Wilson. Uh, coming to the present, though, the issues that really uh, – I would like to press you on is you you talk uh, and the administration talks of a glowing uh, rhetoric of freedom and uh, democracy whereas in fact what we're seeing throughout the world is increasing anarchy and destruction and killing and with that we're seeing in this country a country that has slipped into bankruptcy with the massive federal debts, the massive trade debts, the declining dollar and the weakness of the the economy, uh, what we've seen is a decline in the relative strength of the country at every level. We we see it in business. We see it politically. Um, And the question I really have is why are policies, for instance, in Iraq, Manila Albright, managed to retain or contain Saddam Hussein for $10 billion a year, why do we have to spend 80 to $100 billion a year to accomplish something that is totally uh, disconnected with our own interests? And uh, I guess as a fiscal conservative, I'm really asking where is the money coming from to sustain this grand uh, foreign policy that is really going nowhere? Well, I think the foreign policy has gone somewhere. Um, obviously, this is, a, this is a good, healthy debate that Americans have. They have them especially every four years. We had such a debate last year. The American people uh, resolved it for the time being. There is a continuing debate that will continue to go on. Is America today better off than it was on September 11, 2001? Is there still a sanctuary from which people launch catastrophic attacks against Americans? No. Um, is al-Qaeda weaker or stronger than it was on September 11, 2001? I leave it to any dispassionate analyst to, ju- to judge that question. Is the world more mobilized against global terrorism today than it was then? Um, and we can just go on and on. Is the fate of democracy in the Middle East and Islam better today than it was four or five years ago in Lebanon, in Saudi Arabia, in Iraq, um, in Pakistan? And again, on each of those regions, each of those questions, I think uh, analysts and 
others can sit and debate. As to the question of whether or not America remains an influential country in the world, the good news, which I can report from my vantage point, which admittedly is a cloistered one, is that people do still seem to, all over the world, they'll still do seem to regard the Americans as awfully important and still look for American leadership on every issue. I just gave the example of Sudan, where it's perfectly clear that all the things that I've described on Sudan would not be happening but for the active involvement of the United States. And uh, the leaders of the United Nations and the African Union and NATO have all made that clear to the administration in recent days. Has the invasion of Iraq um, stimulated a reaction that in some respects makes violence worse and terrorism worse? Yes, it has because of the issues and the confrontation that, that they see are at stake. So one can choose sides. Uh, one can choose to try to persist in Iraq and restore that country to a sense of public order, or can we, we can withdraw and abandon it to its fate. But understand that the fate that the insurgents in Iraq seek is not a peaceful Iraq. They do not have a future vision for Iraq that is a peaceful Iraq. If the insurgents are successful in Iraq, I leave it to anyone, anyone, to try to imagine the rock that will ensue with their success. The best case is a horrific civil war. And then again, there are a number of experts here who can postulate what will happen as that civil war unfolds. The best chance for, because what Iraq is experiencing right now is for the first time in a thousand years, the majority population of Iraq has actually decided who will rule Iraq. And others in Iraq don't like that especially the people who now no longer rule. And that is an occasion for violence. And our country and other countries can decide whether to take sides between the forces of order in Iraq and the forces of disorder. Um, this government has made its choice, and other governments will make theirs. Phil, what of the argument that in the aggregate, uh, the policies of the Bush administration, both domestic and foreign, have driven the country into bankruptcy? I think the, um, um, the country has not yet filed Chapter 11, um, but I take the concerns, uh, I think the concerns are serious. Um, I think the, uh, um, I think economists can have a good, lively debate, as they do, uh, as I read uh, what the administration's economists say versus what its opponents say about the percentage of GDP devoted to the public debt. I will say that economists are a little bit puzzled by the macroeconomic statistics because they would have expected that if the United States was borrowing too much and could not def and, and was seen as a likely bankrupt, interest rates would not be so low and have not been so low when the world perceives that American paper is uh, not so easily uh, purchased. But um, this, is a, this is something that will play out over the next several years. Of course, the president is trying now to level off spending on all really non-defense areas. That will be a very painful process with the Congress involving members of both parties, but that is the budget the President has presented. The President has now presented a Social Security proposal which, with his recent refinements, is clearly designed to meaningfully address the arguments about fiscal stability that people have raised, at least with that giant entitlement program in the out years. And so again, I, I, I think we can compare the positions of the two parties and we can judge whether the administration's approach, as it has presented it, is more macroeconomically secure than the approach that has been presented and articulated, if it has been, by the opposing party. But I want to avoid descending too far 
into making this a Republican versus Democratic argument. You'll have noticed that the way the address was phrased, I did not try to constantly say that good ideas and good foreign policies were the monopoly province of a single political party. Frankly, the interests we all share as Americans are larger than that, and the persistence of these policies will rest ultimately on a wider base of support than that. Please. Hi. Uh, my name is Chen Weihua. I'm a Knight Fellow and a journalist from China. Um, my question is, I mean, Sun Zhi 2,000 years ago said the supremacy of warfare is to defeat the enemy without fighting. And how do you think the Bush administration in the next three, four years would spend more time and efforts in winning hearts and minds of the rest of the world rather than, I would say, excessive display of hard power, threat, sanction, military intervention, all those things actually I would see today the rest of the world is quite fearful of America, not a small developing country. You actually see you're a close ally. The Western Europeans are leaders that can dare not to say, use a generous word, speak truth to power, you know. They would re remain silent. Uh, so what I think the danger is, you know, they would, the rest of the world would be silent, but uh, actually you sow the seeds of resentment during the process. I would say, what you just said, I would say there were probably more terrorist uh, al-Qaeda uh, elements now than you before started the war, and there was more people who sympathize uh, bin Laden today. Thank you. Um, let me make two points in answer to that. The first is that the United States um, will win enemies when it does things that do not enjoy universal consensus. If the foreign policy of the United States will be guided by the lowest common denominator of what everyone will accept, uh, then it will be uh, less contentious and it will be also less effective. That is the consensus conciliatory path that I described that the China of choices we faced again and again in our history. People thought that the invasion of Afghanistan was too radical a step. There are fewer of those people who vocalize that sentiment today than there were in the fall of 2001. But on issue after issue, if you're going to take on some of these hard questions, you cannot accept the lowest common denominator answer, especially, by the way, in a situation where the dangers do not affect all countries equally. And so the American motivations for taking action may be disproportionately stronger because we are the likely targets if things go wrong. That's the first point. But the second point is to notice actually the rising degree of convergence among all the leading powers in how to approach some of these problems. Uh, I attended the meeting with French Foreign Minister Barnier in Washington a few days ago. The French Foreign Minister and the Secretary remarked at actually the remarkable degree of convergence they found in the way the Americans and the French were now approaching all the major problems out there today. Um, including what is the appropriate way forward in Iraq, what's the appropriate way forward in Lebanon, on issue after issue. With Britain, the story is clear. With other parts of Europe, the story is clear. With Japan, I think the story is relatively clear. Uh, there is a very large degree of convergence. It's true, too, that the United States is perceived widely as not favoring diplomacy enough. And the United States, therefore, is, needs to and is trying to take concerted actions to overcome that problem. Remember the argument last year that why won't you talk to the North Koreans? Why won't you come to the table offering to talk about the things they want to talk about? 
So the United States put forward a proposal that said, okay, we will. We'll talk about all the things that you desire. The Secretary of State gave a speech in Tokyo a month ago saying to the North Koreans directly, everything you desire is on the table at the six-party talks, so come. But they do not wish to come. With Iran, remember the criticism was the Americans won't stand behind the European effort. They won't let the European, they won't give the Europeans carrots that the Europeans can put on the table. So the United States then stood behind the European effort. The United States then gave the Europeans carrots that the United States controlled that the Europeans could put on the table. And we said we were four square behind the European diplomatic effort. And within a week of the United States' willingness to do that, the Iranians canceled the working groups in their talks with the EU devoted to political and economic matters. They unilaterally withdrew from those working groups and refused to allow any further discussion of those subjects, saying the only subject they were now ready to discuss was the nuclear issue itself. They didn't want to have that kind of negotiation. So the United States is seen and is trying to exemplify what Secretary Rice said at her confirmation, that the time for diplomacy is now. And we are pursuing active, aggressive diplomatic agendas. But there still may be the situation where the problems don't just go away and someone will have to take on the responsibility of confronting them, whether or not that responsibility is shared unanimously. Mike, you have the last... Uh... Sorry? Hearts and minds? Okay, we'll make this the last comment then. Sure. The United States needs more work in its public diplomacy efforts. This is a, a truism now. Everyone has said this. The administration recognizes it. Uh, how does one go about doing this is the interesting question. I mean, concretely, how do we go about doing it? The first stage is, of course, is... Others would say, well, you need to align your policies in a way that will make them more popular. If our policies can be more popular, that will be great. Even better is if they can be understood and perhaps command a certain degree of respect, grudging or not. But to make America's policies understood, to make it understand what the choices are between America and its adversaries in a place like Iraq, and how clear it should be as to what side one should prefer, in that kind of conflict. There is a lot more that needs to be done. That's why uh, Secretary Rice is bringing in Karen Hughes to become her Undersecretary of State for Public Diplomacy, bringing in Dina Powell to work with her, Dina, an Egyptian-American, basically putting every, the best people it can find behind that effort. It's why the administration is in the process right now of putting all the might it can behind building up the uh, initiative for a broader Middle East and North Africa, the Mamina Initiative, which was started at the G8 last year. The American government is going to try to uh, have a process run directly by the Deputy Secretary of State in which it tries to assemble all areas of its assistance so that they are coordinated for maximum impact on the problem of addressing the fundamental crisis in the Muslim world. It's a huge set of issues. And there is no easy prescription. It's not just a Madison Avenue where you need to, you know, buy more ads. It just can't be solved that way. There's a policy level to it, and there's an instrumental level to it. And the administration at least understands the problem and is trying to take on both. Thank you very much, Phil. Please join me in thanking Phil Zelikow. <laughs>
We now move to uh, the afternoon part of the program. We have a short break uh, that lasts until 2.45, and then we go into the breakout sessions. Um, and they're in two blocks. Uh, there's one block that runs from 2.45 to 4 p.m., and there's a second block that runs, I think, from 4.15 to 5.30. You have four choices. Of course, you can't be more than one place at once, so you have to choose. All of them are located at the end of this building. So you just go out these doors and walk straight until you come into the far end of the complex, and then there are breakout rooms. All of the breakout sessions are identified on your conference programs. Uh, you're free to uh, pick and choose. Obviously, as I said, you can't be uh, more than one place at a time, so uh, you're going to have to uh, make up your own mind. At the end of that, we'll come back for a reception in advance of the uh, uh, dinner and the evening keynote from Sandy Berger. So we look forward to uh, seeing you all back uh, in the lobby area at the end of the breakouts. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.